the Council Book Gazette that I have this morning as we continue our series, Majoring in the Minors. And let's just real quick ask the Lord to just bless His Word as we go to it now. Father, as we open up Your Word and we look to Your book of Zephaniah, Father God, despite all the, all the things that are going on that are hurting our heart, Father God, may we look forward to the promises that You have for us, Father God. Not a promise that everything's going to be fine and great, right now, but Lord, that in the future you have promised to take away all our pain, all our suffering, that there will be no more tears in heaven, Lord, that there would be no more sin, that there would be no more death. And we look forward to that day, Father God, and I pray that you would speak to us hope from your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message as we close out the book of Zephaniah is Restoration Promised. Now, speaking of promises, how many of us, we're, we're going to raise our hands for this one. How many of us have kept every single promise we've made? No one, huh? Okay. How many of us have ever made promises off the cuff without even thinking them through? Yeah, this is about everybody. You see, our promises are always made with the best intentions, though, aren't they? We make promises to do something, or we promise that we'll never do something again. We promise that we'll be there at a specific time, or that we'll come through with something that's needed. No matter how well-intentioned, though, events press in, situations prevent us from fulfilling our promises, don't they? And we're caught off guard by things that are outside our control, which, if we're honest, everything is outside our control. The Lord, however, is unlike us when it comes to promises. You see, he's never surprised by events that come. He knows all things. But on top of that, he's sovereign in all things. Sovereign enough to even when things seem to derail his plans, that he's able to fulfill and accomplish his word. He's able to work and accomplish despite giving people free will. He can act around our free choices and still accomplish what he's proclaimed that he will do. And this is important. It was important for Israel to understand this because of what was just proclaimed to them by the prophet Zephaniah. If you remember, the first two chapters are all about the judgment coming. Judgment that is coming not only for Jerusalem and, and, and Judah, but also for all the nations. And... It's important for us to understand what's being said this morning as well. Because no matter how depressing the message of judgment is from such books as the Minor Prophets, we need to understand it's never the final word from God. It's never his final word to his people. As we've seen even in the judgments themselves, there's hope that is offered. There's a chance for repentance. And so this morning, as we close out the book of Zephaniah, the very first words that we encounter in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, for I will then. And that signifies the pivot point in the prophet's message. The tone changes. The content of the message changes. God makes a promise that God will restore. And instead of the horrifying threats, it comes to comforting promises of love, mercy, and restoration. And these promises, what they look forward to 
is the millennium when Christ comes to rule as king on the earth. God's promise in light of repeated sin of the nations and of God's own people, God promised judgment, but also restoration. And the Lord always has the last word because he's always able to fulfill his words and his promises. And we need to remember that this morning. If you'll start with me, verse 9. It says, For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down and nothing to make, with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is among you. You, know, you need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hearts, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals and they will be a tribute to you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. We see several promises that come with that restoration, that promise of restoration. The first promise that we see is that there is a reversing of what happened at Babel. A reversing of what happened at Babel. Look at the first five verses again with me. It's, for then I will restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. He says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. He says, on that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from you, from among you, your jubilant, arrogant people. And you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you and they will, seek ref they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. The promise here that God makes, he, he promises to restore pure speech. Pure, guiltless, free from sin. How 
hard it is for us to have a pure speech, isn't it? And that's just not words that we choose to speak wrong, right? How many of us have spoken careless words? That's the hardest thing. Sometimes you don't know how those words are going to be interpreted. God promises to restore a pure speech that no one can misinterpret. No one can miscommunicate. Amen? And he promises to do it to all the peoples, all the nations, so that all of them can call on the name of the Lord and that all of them can serve him with a single purpose. You see, that promise, that promise restored hope, not just for the Jews, but for all people, all nations, including us today. It is a promised restoration of speech. It's changing speech back to a pure speech, a unified speech that all the people, not just the Jews, may call on the name of the Lord and serve him. And that change of speech back to one speech, a unified speech, reminds me of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It's a reversal of what happened there. And if you'll go with me, Genesis chapter 11, you can see what happened at the Tower of Babel. Some of us are familiar with this, others aren't, and here's where it's found. It says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So he says, come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babel or Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. You see, what happened was when Noah got off the ark and the waters receded, God gave the people a command. He said, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Go into all the earth. And the people said, no. If we go into all the earth, we're going to be scattered, so we're going to stay together. So they chose to go against God. Then what they did was they said, come, let's build a city for ourselves. We'll give ourselves a great name. They wanted to make themselves famous. They wanted to make themselves well-known throughout the earth. The desire was that they would have a God-like status. Very similar to another who said, I will be like the Most High. And God responded to their pride and their unification in this prideful, arrogant goal by confusing their language. And it's been confused ever since that day. They went from a single language to many, and they could no longer communicate properly with one another. See, we say that he gave them languages for all the nations, but I also believe that that's when he gave men their language and women their language, and nobody could understand anybody ever again. 
So they went their own way, and thus they were scattered throughout the earth, and they no longer built the city or the tower. But Zephaniah here gives a prophecy from the Lord for reversing Babel, restoring their speech, bringing the new speech, being pure. The speech being pure is key because the Bible teaches what comes out of the mouth reveals the condition of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, he said, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. And he says, brood of vipers. That's how I know he's talking to the Pharisees because that was his nickname for them. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Continues on, he says, a good person produces good things from the, his storeroom of good. An evil person produces evil things from the storeroom of his evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Or Luke puts it a different way. In Luke's gospel, it says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes aren't picked from a bramble bush. So a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart and an evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So an impure heart produces impure speech. Can't help it. And so God promising to restore the pure speech, what he's saying is he's promising people pure hearts. God will give pure hearts by removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a new heart. And this isn't the only place where he's promised that. Ezekiel prophesied. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This time, however, when the people are united with a pure heart, pure speech, and a single purpose, it's to serve the Lord, not to compete with the Lord. Beyond the rivers of Cush, he says, my supplicants and my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. You know what's really cool about this? John Corson in his application commentary had this to say. When Israel became a nation in 1948, Jews from all over, they were brought into the land to dwell. They were invited to come back. They said, if you are a Jew or of Jewish heritage, come back to the land, you will have a place to settle. Among those who returned were a people from Ethiopia, called the Falashas. Ethiopia, if you remember from last week, is the modern-day land of Cush. And so the Falashas, although they wore prayer shawls and they carried the Torah and they celebrated the three major feasts of Judaism, the Falashas were a mystery. Nobody understood where they came from or how they knew to do all those things. However, Falasha tradition says that when the Queen of Sheba returned from her visit with King Solomon along with the gifts bestowed upon her, she also brought back Judaism. Unknown among the world for centuries, 
a group of people living in Ethiopia were observant and practicing Jews, and God promised that they would come as far from the land of Cush, bringing their offering, my, my dispersed people. Now God promises, he says, on that day, you, his people, the people of God, he says, on that day, you will not be put to shame because of your actions or because of your rebellion against me. Instead, he says, I will remove the arrogant and haughty and I'm going to leave behind the meek and the humble and they're going to take refuge in the name of the Lord. This is the remnant of the restored. Like the nations will be returned to pure speech, no longer telling lies or doing wrong and a deceitful tongue will not be found in them. That is what he promises to do for his people, the Jews. He says, I will remove all the haughty from among you. I'm going to leave you and you're no longer going to be telling lies. You're no longer going to be doing wrong. You're no longer going to have a deceitful tongue. Though national judgment is assured against the Jews, God is saying, I will not abandon my people because he is the covenant-keeping sovereign God. In Deuteronomy 31.6, it says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you and he will not leave you or abandon you. This is the one that everybody quotes. God will never leave nor forsake you. It means he will never leave nor will he abandon you. And it's repeated again, real close. Whenever something's repeated in close proximity in the Bible, that means it's doubly true, like it's important, pay attention. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Therefore, do not be afraid or discouraged. So he's going to reverse Babel and bring all the people back together in one speech with one purpose, to serve him and call upon his name. Then we also see that in that restoration promise, we'll be singing the song of salvation. In verse 14, it says, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear any harm. And on that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love, and he will delight in you with singing. So Zephaniah, in this message from God, encourages and calls on the people to sing for joy. And here's the truth. God's restored and purified people sing, right? Before we were saved, did we have any reason to sing to God? No, we sing the song of salvation because now we know God and he saved us. The people of God who've been restored and purified, they sing, they sing praise, and they worship God. They're called on to celebrate with all their heart. Think of all the ways people celebrate everything else in the world. Everything else that pales in comparison to God's work of salvation among his people. And my Christian brothers and sisters, 
celebrate with all your heart what God has done. Don't let the celebration of other things be greater than your celebration for the Lord. For God has removed your punishment. He's turned back your enemy and he now stands among you. You see, in Christ Jesus, when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have our punishment of sin removed from us because Christ took it on himself at the cross. We have our enemy turned away. We no longer have to fear death, that last great enemy. Because he who believes in Jesus, though he dies, yet he shall live is the promise. Sing a song of praise because he has given you the victory and he is now ruling in your midst. For those of us that know Christ today, he rules in our hearts right now. He may not be ruling over the nations, though we probably wish he would, especially at least in this one, right? I can't wait for Christ to rule and reign. I don't even know what it is like having a pure, just, completely holy government. But I can't wait. But not only are we to praise him for what he's done, but we're called to praise him for things yet to come. And so we can sing the praise. Come, Lord Jesus, even so come. Psalm 118, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous, and the Lord's right hand performs valiantly. And what about the praise of the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah says, on that day you will say to me, I will give thanks to you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation, and I will trust him and not be afraid for the Lord. The Lord himself is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make his works known among the people. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. And as much as we realize his salvation right here today in Christ Jesus, know that the promise for Israel is that they will know it in the future when Christ comes again to rule and reign. And so Israel was called to sing praises for the salvation from God. Not only in the temporary end of the exile, not only when they come back from Babylon, but that they would sing praises for in the future when her king comes to stand and rule in her midst and they no longer have harm to fear. Israel will lack nothing to sing for. And we lack nothing to sing for today if we are in Christ Jesus. But they won't be the only ones who sing for joy in that day though. Israel is promised that the Lord God will be among them as a warrior who saves, but also as one who will rejoice and sing over them. How amazing to consider that God of the universe would turn and sing praises over those whom he saved. When it comes to God's saving, we can't help but sing and rejoice. We're to have joy in God, but did you know that God promises to have joy in you? Imagine God rejoicing over you. It's said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one convert 
than over anything else. In Luke 15, 7, it says, I tell you, Christ says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. My brothers and sisters in Christ, God will rejoice over you and delight over you with singing, and he will be singing his own song of salvation to us. That's just mind-blowing to consider. We often underestimate the joy that God has in his people. Instead, we say, God must be annoyed with me. At least I say that. Maybe he's irritated with me. That's how I feel all the time, because I know I fall short of all these things. But the truth is, and what we see in Scripture, is that in those times when God is fulfilling his promise, as as God fulfills his promise in saving us and, and changing us and renewing our hearts, he has joy over us. He doesn't look at us as we were. He looks at us as how he's making us to be. Spurgeon said, faulty as the church is, the Lord rejoices in her. While we mourn and as well we may, yet we do not sorrow as those who are without hope. For God does not sorrow. His heart is glad and he is said to rejoice with joy. It's a highly emphatic expression. It's not just like God is like smiling at us. Like he's overjoyed shouting praises and singing over us. But never forget, it's not because of us. It's all because of him. And then God said, another promise in here, it might kind of confuse us. It did to me when I first looked at it, that God promises to be quiet in his love. Wait a minute, it just said that he's singing praises over us. What do you mean he promises to be quiet in his love? Well, other manuscripts, Assyrian manuscripts specifically, translate that instead that he will renew you in his love. That sounds more like God that he will renew us in his love. It's his love that renews us. And the final promise in this that we find at the end of Zephaniah's message is that there is a gathering for restoration. You see, Israel is about to be dispersed and scattered. The northern kingdom's already swallowed up, already been dispersed and scattered. Ten tribes lost among the other cultures of the nation. Judah and Benjamin are next. But God promises to regather. In verse 18, he says, I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. And in this one section right here, seven times Zephaniah proclaims what the Lord says, I will. And it's to speak a strong hope before the believing remnant in Zephaniah's day. Because in the face of his imminent judgment is the promise of his remote, far-off restoration mercies. 
So God spoke through the prophet to let the remnant grasp firmly the promises of God for comfort and strength for what they were about to walk through. He says, I will gather those who have been driven, meaning I will bring those back from exile. This is his promise. You're about to go into exile. I will bring you back. He says, I will deal with all who oppress you. Those who come and conquer you and bring you into exile, they too will be judged. Babylon was judged. Babylon was defeated. He says, I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. And I'm so glad God promised to do that because I, I know that I feel as an outcast in, in, in life and everything. I'm so glad that he desires the outcast. He, he's not looking for the popular. He's not looking for the most prominent. God's looking for those who are brokenhearted, those who are, that would consider themselves lame. Every time I see in the Bible where it says, I, I, I will um, gather the lame or I have a heart for the lame, I, I always think of not so much like can't walk, but so much like those whom the rest of society says, you're lame. Basically saying, I have no need for you. But God says, I will gather them to myself. Now, God was speaking to those who couldn't walk because in those times, they, they would say, you're useless. And God says, that which man calls useless, I will bring to myself. He says, I will gather you. I will bring you back. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples when I restore your fortunes. Never before has a civilization, a, a country, a nation been so defeated, yet brought back and restored to prominence and, and, and having fame as Israel has been, but that's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the millennial reign when Christ comes back and sets Israel up. Israel will be set up as the, the center of that world, of that time, not because of anything special there, but because Christ has promised it and Christ is ruling from in there. Summarizing Israel's yet future blessings of regathering in the promised land, having a favorable reputation of honor and praise among the nations and the restoring of her fortunes. Now, if we read this with our Western eyes and we say restoring her fortunes, we're like, all the gold and silver is going to be brought back? All the money, all the bank account? That's not what God's talking about at all. He's talking about her fortunes that she had in God, in being God's chosen, in being God's nation set apart, holy, And this will all happen right before her very eyes. You see, in the millennium, Israel will possess her land as God has promised from the full extensions of the borders. Did you know that they've never possessed the entirety of their inheritance? In that day, they will possess everything that God had for them. They will have their Messiah, Israel's king, and his kingdom will be established and his kingdom will reign on forever. And here's the assurance of these things. The final words of the book of Zephaniah. The Lord has spoken. You see, the emphasis is on his divine authority. The emphasis is on his ultimate sovereignty. As well as the certainty of these things, Zephaniah ends with the Lord has spoken. The message of judgment so pervasive in the Bible that some scholars doubt the accepted authorship of some of them due to the fact that they end on a positive note. 
which differs completely from the rest of their message. When we looked at Amos, this was such a book that they doubted the authorship because Amos was so heavy with judgment, but it ends like this. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. Many books in the Bible, they end in depressing ways. The book of Genesis ends. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. That's it. That's, that's the end of the... Wait, Joseph just did a great thing in saving them all from the famine, and then it just ends with his death? Now what? It skips hundreds of years. Now they've been oppressed for so long. Malachi. The end of the Old Testament altogether, the end of the prophecies, the last words spoken from God, again, for hundreds of years. It says, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. But you know what's really cool? You can't just take one part of the Bible and separate it out. You know the Bible as a whole, you know how it ends? Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I, Christ, am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with everyone. Amen. You see, if the book of the Bible were merely man's work, it would never end this way. Think of all the great best-selling books out there, right? How many of them end on a negative note? It's because we don't want to hear that. If it, if it ended this way, that note of optimism would seem false. There's nothing in life that encourages us to think that all in life is going to turn out well. Right? We, we're faced with many situations and left to our own devices, left to without hope in Christ, all we have is despair in those situations. The judgments of history, however, are not the final word. The truth is, it, this book, it's not merely the work of man, and we need to understand that. We need to grasp it because there are promises in here that we have to hold on to. This is a book that is written by man, yes, but through the inspiration of God's own spirit. And so consequently, the promise of restoration rings true. It's believable for the simple reason that the sovereign and gracious God has spoken it. What a joy that is. My brothers and sisters in Christ, and those of you, you need to hear this. Sin does not have the last word. Evil will not triumph. The devil will be judged. And it's an encouraging word, especially in this time, for our depressed and despairing world to hear and to know and to understand that. And for those of us here this morning in Christ, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us to increase our view of salvation. Because the higher our view of salvation, the higher our realization of what God has done for us in rescuing us and saving us from our enemies, the higher our praise will be. Because our praise will never rise above our view of salvation. 
What does your praise say about your view of salvation? Not just your salvation. What does your praise say about God's saving work among all nations? Does it cause you to rejoice and praise the God who saves? We need to check that. When will the ultimate deliverance of the Lord take place? Not until after the specified time of judgment. Zephaniah's appeal is to seek the Lord before that great and terrible day known as the day of the Lord comes when all nations will be judged but all who believe will be saved. Israel's going to experience the direct promises of God to act on her behalf against her enemies and the Jews will be restored to their land but they have to wait for that time. I mean, they can find salvation individually right now, but for the nation itself to be restored, they have to wait for that time. And I want you to know that today is the day of salvation, and today is the day that you can escape that judgment. Don't wait for the day of judgment. It's too late. And understand that the promise of God is that judgment is not the final word. Christ's work on the cross is the final word. And so as we uh, prepare to take communion, I'm going to ask the, the guys that I've asked to help me hand out the communion to come on up. And um, we, we have to have that, that mindset. Communion is something that we partake of to remember the sacrifice that Christ made, but also the promise that is yet to come through that sacrifice. We've been... We've been saved from our sin and the penalty of sin. But we haven't quite realized it just yet. Salvation works in many different ways. Right now, in Christ Jesus, you are saved from the penalty of sin, past tense. As you live your life for Christ, in the spirit of Christ, as the Holy Spirit dwells in you and leads you into all righteousness, you are being saved from the power of sin in your life. This is a process known as sanctification. The reason why we look so forward to Christ coming again is because when he appears, we don't know what he'll look like, but we know that we shall be like him because in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be transformed and changed and the, inc the corruptible shall put on the incorruptible and we will be changed in a moment. You, you know what that's speaking of? our final, total, and complete salvation in which we are saved from the presence of sin forevermore. All of us who are alive today, we were born in sin. We've never known a life apart from sin. And so we look forward to that time, that promise, where we will never know sin ever again. We will never know pain ever again. We will never know death ever again. And so that's the promise that we have in Christ's sacrifice. We partake of it together as a church, not because there's anything supernatural necessarily about it, but because Christ has asked us, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we want to remember Christ? Because of all he did for us to prove all he said was true so that we can believe for all the things that he's yet promised. And so Paul, as he's instituting 
as he's instituting the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take. And here's why. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, meaning we recognize that he died on the cross for us, that we have salvation through that sacrifice on the cross. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is the promise that he's coming once again for us and he's coming to take us back to be with him, that he's coming to take us out of this world, out of the presence of sin where sin and death will be put away forever. And so we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Maranatha. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you so much, Father God. We thank you for speaking through your prophets, and we thank you that their message from long ago is still alive and well today, Father God, that your promises from long ago, you have not forgotten a single one of them. But Lord, you fulfill all things that you have proclaimed and so when we see the words the Lord has spoken, we know it is a certainty. And you have promised, Father God. And we look forward to that day of promise. In Jesus' name, amen.